Welcome to Engineering Influence Podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. And today we're going to be tackling a very important topic, which is affecting not only our industry, but practically every industry out there. And that is the speed of technological advancement and just the displacement that we're seeing across industries uh, with the rampant advent of uh, disruptive technologies on the marketplace. Engineering is no... Uh, no uh, safer than anyone else out there. And to discuss this, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jason Paff. He is the Vice President of Innovation for Power Engineers. Jason, there. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. So, you know, we talk about this a lot internally here at ACEC, and, and in fact, we're starting up a technology committee just to deal with this issue. But, you know, it seems like whenever we look at the news, there's something new. Um, in the public sphere, AI has taken over the world and the, the use of AI pictures to either fake a shot of the Pope wearing a puffy vest or, a, or, or most recently, I think Selena Gomez at the Met Ball where she actually was not present, um, has really grasped everyone's attention. Of course, you know, yep. it's not all AI. It's, it's a lot more down-to-earth technology. But you know, can you kind of a, give us a little bit of a history, a little primer on uh, where we are and how we've gotten here in, in terms of disruptive technologies? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things I'll probably talk about here today. And, and you know, it's technology, but uh, probably more how it leads to some of the innovations that we're seeing in our industry. Um, you know, technology is one of the reasons we actually started the innovation program, uh, but it wasn't so much as as starting it because we were uh, seeing all this new technology, it was how we saw it as a, as a potential disruption to our industry. So maybe I could start with really understanding the ACEC business model, typical companies who play in this space and how they uh, deliver products and services. So let, let, let's go ahead and start there and why I think that leads to innovation and disruption. So Let's let's look at it, whether an engineering company or an architecture company or landscape architecture company. Let's look at how we do business today. And for almost all of us out there, especially in the engineering world, we sell hours. That's what we do. We sell hours to make money. We still sell time and material hours. And we do this, uh, you know, I think in the future, what we want to do is shift from a model that's selling hours to outcomes, right? We want to shift to a lump sum model. Well, the disruptive technology that's coming down the pipeline that we see has the potential to significantly disrupt our business model of selling hours. And while we think that we can reduce labor, we can also provide equal or better value, which allows us to become more innovative. So maybe I'll take you on a bit of a journey on what power engineers, how we're leveraging innovation to help us deal with disruption from these technologies that are coming in. So let me give you a little bit of an overview about our program. We have really three focuses when it comes to innovation in a company that, that deals with disruption. So we have an internal focus uh, and from there an internal focus, we're always looking at ways to leverage innovation to do our work better, do our work faster, do our work cheaper, reduce the overhead that we, you know, that we face and, and anything to reduce the amount of overhead that we have ultimately, you know, results in a better bottom line. 
Um, so we focus a lot on, on internal innovation. We call this level one innovation. We focus a lot on that to help us do our work better, faster, cheaper. Now, when it comes to the external side, though, that is a real big part of where we see innovation disruption happening. Externally, we focus on working with our clients. You know, if you think about the, the traditional ACEC model, an RFP comes out and we respond to that RFP, we give them a bid and we deliver an engineering drawing or a set of architectural plans or construction drawings, whatever. We deliver it based on their existing need. But we believe in order for us to truly understand the challenges of the future, we have to change this paradigm of how we see this client consultant relationship. And we're looking at more of, of an advisory role. So when we work with our clients, we're starting to work with their innovation teams as true partners, not just client subconsultant. And by doing this, we can understand what the trends are, the emerging challenges are, and ideally we can start developing solutions uh, that get us directed to where the puck's gonna be going, not just where we're at today, not just solving the problems today, but really solving the problems of tomorrow. Um, the other reason that we work so strongly with clients, and it's so important for us to work in clients in innovation and, and test out new technologies, is because our clients have all of the data we need in order to study to make an impact. Artificial intelligence is a great example. How can we study artificial intelligence without, without leveraging the very data that we need from the clients in order to study that? So that's a big part of what we do. So we don't, we don't just develop stuff in a vacuum. So clients are a big part of our ecosystem. And, and we have a lot of examples where we are innovating with our clients as partners. And it's a really exciting time. But the other thing that we recognize uh, on the external front is technology partners. We as an as a ACEC um, company, an engineering company, we recognize that we don't have everything that we need to take advantage of the technologies, the emerging technologies that are coming into the field. So we feel very, very strongly about working with partners, technology partners. And so we have a whole group that just identifies what we need as a company and goes out and finds those partners. And when I mean finding partners, I mean finding those technology companies that maybe are still in college, maybe are still in their garage, maybe are just emerging on the landscape. And, you know, by doing this, we found that we can understand really what this dis disruption could potentially be and understand the readiness for this technology to be, be deployed in market. Yeah, and, that, and then ultimately we have a group that invests in. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, it's a really good point that you raise. I mean, there are a number of service providers out there that are already kind of covering the waterfront on some of these larger, you know, issues related to project management, related to, you know, project delivery. But, you know, there as you evaluate your needs from from a technology standpoint and, and kind of future proofing, you know, really the question becomes, okay, what happens when there isn't a solution? Um, have you looked at internally developing your own solutions as a potential monetization program of uh, creating new products and services that are, that are to the AE space and not just for an end client? Uh, so one of the, one of the, uh, the things that our, our CEO told me when I first started the innovation program, he, he said, look, he said, we have this engine 
of very intellectual people. We have dang near 4,000 people who are subject matter experts in engineering. We have experts in our market and we have experts who've been doing this for you know several decades. We should be able to look at new ways to monetize our IP beyond just delivering hours, right? So look at, look at not just delivering services, look at delivering solutions. So a big part of what we do in the innovation program is we try to identify, you know, two things. We try to understand what is the challenges that are faced over the horizon by our clients and what are some of the emerging technologies or solutions that we can come up with to solve those challenges. Um, and we recognize that there is a lot of work to do in the AC, uh, EC space. Uh, a lot of challenges that our clients, especially in the energy industry, are facing that only innovation is going to be able to solve. And it's not necessarily going to come from a technology company. It's going to have to come with, with companies who really understand the industries that we serve, which gets, gets to something I'll talk about in a bit. And that is, you know, what is the future for companies like power engineers look like? And right now we provide services, but does the engineering company of the future, is it a hybrid of services and software? What, what are the lines that we start blurring to become a software company um, in addition to our services that we provide? That, that's an interesting point. And, and I think uh, as to, to kind of jump off from there, uh, in the last, I believe it was our last fall conference out in Colorado, we had a futurist, Amy Webb. And uh, she was talking about um, her husband, who's an optometrist, who realized that with the profit margins that are as razor thin, I didn't re actually realize how razor thin they were for optometry, but the, the, the doctors that were actually leading and surviving were the ones that were investing in technology and going digital and putting an, uh, an emphasis on data and client and patient data. And she made the analogy to say that potentially in the future, it's not so much the engineering firm not only providing a design for, let's say, a bridge, but creating the virtual model of that bridge and owning that in the virtual space and all of the data points that go along with that bridge that then you sell back to the client on a subscription-based service. So now you're not just providing a drawing to work in the physical environment, but for all the maintenance moving forward and all the work that needs to happen on that bridge, the firm becomes the provider for all the data that models all of that work into the future, extending that project lifespan and creating an entire new product section, uh, sector. Um, you know, that I, I wonder if that kind of fits in with what you're talking about or what your thoughts might be on something like that. You know, you're referring to uh, digital twins, which which I think is going to have a significant impact on our industry as we move forward. Um, you, you know, before I dive too deep into the technologies, I thought I'd, I'd share our perspective on industry. You know, you know, we're talking about it. You know, our our industry, all energy industries, the energy industry, any infrastructure industry, architecture industry, we're standing on what we we believe is the next industrial revolution. And you, you know, not to take you down too far of a rabbit hole, but if you look look back at the the last couple of industrial revolutions we've had, you know, you look at Industry 1.0, which was 
I think that was like the 17, late 1700s. That was mechanization and steam and weaving loom. Well, what, what did that industry do? It reduced labor, physical labor, right? And then industry 2.0, which was the late uh, 1800s, 1870s, I think is when they say that. That was mass production, assembly line. That's when electricity got brought on. What did it do? Reduced physical labor. Industry 3.0, which was computers and automation, uh, we started seeing um, automation or manufacturing using robotics. And that, again, reduced labor. Industry 4.0, uh, which is cyber physical systems, Internet of Things, networks, connected humans, all that stuff where we're at today is making our, our work faster, better, cheaper. But what you're talking about, which is artificial intelligence, digital twins, and these disruptive technologies, this is why we really are focused on innovation because these digital twins and AI, what it's reducing now is reducing labor in the form of intellect. We, we, this is the first time I think in our history, besides maybe when CAD systems and we, we shifted from doing hand drafting to um, CAD drafting. This is, this is really one of the biggest, uh, disruptions I think we're going to face in our lifetime. And that is when you've got artificial intelligence and digital twins, it will significantly change our, our business model. And the irony of disruption is, uh, is a lot of people perceive this as a threat, but disruption is actually a great growth opportunity. You just said it with the company that's providing bridges and they provide all of the data that helps you from um, the way you collect it all the way to way, the way you deliver it and manage and maintain that asset in, in perpetuity. It's that flexibility. I guess that it all, it's incumbent upon the firm to be flexible. Yes. And, and yes. to be willing to invest and in, as power is doing with, with, with its uh, innovation projects to take that leap and uh, evolve into the next stage of what, a future engineering firm could be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't, we, uh, we think that remaining flexible and, you know, that's, that's in some of our culture codes, remaining flexible and grassroots that uh, that's going to be one of the ways uh, for us to win. Um, you know, while we're talking about, I, I, I can start talking a little bit about the, the technologies that we think might be a disruption, how we might see that as a disruption for, for, for what we do. Uh, well, let's, let's start with, um, let's start with chat GPT. Let's start with AI. You know, I think that's a really good place to start because that's the buzzword right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you play with chat GPT. You can go in and, and say, tell me a story, you know, write me a story of a, uh, of, of a hero that might have to battle a dragon to save a town, right? It'll do, it does a really good job. It uses natural language processing to tell this story on, you know, what is the hero's purpose? What is his need? And what is the journey along the way? What are the challenges he faced or she faced? And, and you know, what was the adversary they're trying to, trying to uh, come across? So I've been thinking about this in the form of artificial intelligence and how that kind of AI could potentially impact a company like Power or an architecture firm. So if you think about what we do as professionals, we tell stories. We tell stories through our professional services. So I got my start in environmental planning. And when I graduated uh, college, I went to work for a company called Dames and Moore. 
And I started out doing visual assessments for long haul transmission line projects. So you think about what an environmental planner does to permit something. They, um, they have to first understand the purpose and need. So let's take, let's make this our hero's journey, right? What is the purpose and need of our project? Well, our purpose and need is we need to get electricity from point A to point B. And we need to figure out how this journey is going to take place or where should we take this transmission line and put it on a map, right? And in this journey, we have, we have uh, opportunities and constraints, things that will help us make decisions about how we get from point A to point B. Natural, physical, sociological data sets that we rely on, that we look at as humans, helps us make a decision about where we should put something. So ultimately, we reduce impacts to a bare minimum. So if you look at what like AI is doing in telling this story, right now at the very beginning of a project, which we start out with inventory, we're using artificial intelligence uh, to interpret information that we're seeing on aerial photography. So image-based object recognition today can look at land use patterns and start to identify this is, looks like an urban area this looks like um uh agriculture this looks like a stream so it's starting to help us decipher what was traditionally reserved for a human to interpret we're telling it what to look for so in the inventory phase of our hero's journey we are re already relying on artificial intelligence to help pull those data sets out and you know we don't see it happening overnight that AI is going to take over the world and do everything when it comes to inventory because you still need people to go out and do soil samples and test air quality and stuff. You still need that today. In the future, maybe a robot will do that. So in inventory, we're seeing the reduction in overall professional labor because artificial intelligence is starting to do the interpretation. Now, in the middle phase, when we're doing the analysis, this is this is how the, the hero tries to figure out where he's going to go and how he gets from point A to point B. We as professionals, when it comes to permitting a transmission line, have to look at those layers again and make a decision about where it goes. But the way that we do that today is we as professionals, we draw a line on a map. And then we take it back to a geographic information system, maybe an Esri product, ArcInfo or ArcGIS. And we say, how do we do? How did we do with this route that I just drew compared to the natural, physical and sociological data sets we have to compare it against? How did this route stack up? How did this route stack up? And how, you know, we might get 10, 20, 30 routes uh, into the system to figure out which one's the best, right? And then we, then we continue to make a decision about where it should go based on how it scores today. So at the end of the journey, we as professionals have been making these decisions. Well, I'm working with a company right now out of Scotland that is using artificial intelligence to make the recommendations for us. And it's using what's called evolutionary, an evolutionary algorithm for artificial intelligence. Um, and a company by the name is, is Continuum Industries, great, great company. Um, they are able to look at the opportunities and constraints that we feed it and then start routing a transmission line for us. So what is this doing? It's analyzing not 10 or 20 routes. It's looking at thousands of routes, 10,000 routes. 
And when we first tested it, I thought I'd share this with when we first tested it, we 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 did just kind of an anecdotal test to see how it would work, how it'd stack up human versus machine. And we it it basically chose most of the routes that that we had as as professionals and it ranked it pretty close to what we had, except for one difference. It routed something through an area that we didn't think was possible. And it picked this route and it we didn't figure out why until we actually started diving into this route a little bit and figured out oh my god it actually found something that we didn't see as humans and it through one of the areas slightly routed it better and that was one of the moments that we we looked at ourselves as professionals and went artificial intelligence has the ability maybe not right now today but has the ability to augment and or significantly reduce the amount of time it takes for us to route something from point A to point B. Okay, so that's the analysis. Let me just jump to the the, the final conclusion, you know, the, the, the end of our hero's journey. When we submit an environmental impact statement, we always submit a giant report. And this report tells this story of what we looked at, what was the purpose and need, what we looked at, what was our analysis, what was the rationale behind the analysis, what did it tell us, um, and then it, what was the route we decided to choose and what is the mitigation or to further reduce impacts? Well, natural language processing, if we feed it the right information in the future, uh, one could probably assume that it could tell this story for us. And it's already doing this. It's already creating tables and charts and maps and stuff. So that's one example of how artificial intelligence could help augment or I think, you know, reduce the hours that we spend on a project. If that may, yeah, I, yeah, without quite. I mean, that's. I think you, you know, you summarize that perfectly. I think the, the, the great thing about AI right now is just its ability to comb through so many data sets in such a short time, and have that ability to kind of measure and weigh and compare. At but it's still at the end of the day, it makes a recommendation that needs to be checked by a human, by a licensed engineer. Who goes out and says yes? This this that route that was that was that was you know formulated by an AI does actually work. Um, from a firm perspective, I guess from from the firm of the future perspective, I mean, what does that mean for you know the firm size and structure, right? Because you won't need as much staff if you're augmented by AI, right? You don't have to have as many people to validate or research or go through and model these things because you have this powerful weapon on your side that, that, that pretty much takes the place of all that staff. Do you see it, do you see the, the kind of the staff makeup switching from, you know, you do have your licensed engineers who are able to sign a document and, 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 and take on that, that ownership and that responsibility, but then you have a, a lot of data scientists or a lot of AI specialists who are, you know, making sure that your your AI programs are running effectively, efficiently, or looking at the right things instead of instead of it being kind of a, its own department on its own. Yeah, I I don't foresee a significant reduction in staff. Not not you know for for at least the next decade. But you're right. I think we're going to change start slowly changing the dynamics of our staff. So if we are gonna be relying on artificial intelligence, 
someone has to be there to, to train, uh, create the training data sets and the algorithms in order for us to better best take advantage of those um, those data sets. And the, the, the engineer, the landscape architect, the planner, you know, the, the professions that we we were we train up and bring into our organization, those aren't going to go away. And one of the reasons is, is artificial intelligence, if, if you look at ChatGPT3 and ChatGPT4, the training data sets that are on there, the information that you give back today, the computer doesn't know if it's right or wrong. The, the computer is just basically pulling from the pool of information that has been put in there by humans. You're still going to need someone to fact check all that data. Um, so I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of work that's going to need to occur before we, we trust a computer to do our job. But I agree with you, computer scientists, data scientists, um, folks who specialize in AI, maybe with a background in computer engineering, those are some of the things we're going to train up for in the future. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, and it also goes and kind of validates why we're starting up a technology committee because of the opportunities this creates and, and, and the way that technology is going to help or, or push forward an evolution in the industry. And of course, we're not alone. I mean, so many other industries are going to be going through the same thing uh, because the same benefits from investing in AI and the like. Um, you know, how, you know, I kind of mentioned this on, on, on uh, you know, the firms being willing to change, but I mean, from Power's perspective on a strategic plane, I mean, how much of a differentiator is a firm, uh, is it going to be for a firm to have this, in, in this, this ability, this, you know, to actually make these investments in innovation? Then how much of a, of a competitive advantage are, are, is there going to be compared to other firms that are slow to start or more traditional in, in the way that they do things? Yeah, that's actually a, a really good question. And there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, let me start out by saying that, uh, again, I don't think, I'm not worried about our jobs being taken away in, in the ACEC industry, but I'm more worried about being able to hire the right people with the right skill sets. I don't think we can train um, the type of professionals that we need fast enough. And I've already talked to some of the, you know, the universities, I think we have to lean on them. But how important is it going to be to look at this and what does, you know, what, what is the differentiator is going to be? I think the differentiator, uh, you know, now and in the future is going to be uh, going to be really important. It's going to be, you know, reduce labor and reduce costs. You're going to see costs being driven down a little bit. But I think I think we shouldn't just look at it as costs being driven down. We should look at it as opportunities to do our work better, safer better quality, um, more value for the products that we're, we're delivering. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what we're worried about is the Kodak example, right? Kodak, you know, right? I, I, for those of you who don't know the, the Kodak example, Kodak, Kodak was so blinded by their success in the film industry that they completely missed the rise of digital technologies. And you probably know this, Jeff. I, lo I love this story. I like to tell this story. Um, but, you know, Kodak dominated the film industry well into the 90s and the 2000s. And it was ultimately what brought Kodak down, why they went bankrupt in 2012, was not a technology adoption failure. It was a business failure. They could not change their business model. And uh, many of you probably already know this, but see, I think it was Steve's 
assassin. He invented the first digital camera. He worked for Cam- for for Kodak. Yeah, they they invented it. They had it, and they just completely squandered it. They they squandered it. And I don't know. Do you remember what leadership told him when he brought that idea to him? Do you remember what what they said? I, I forget exactly what they said, but they were just they were just they were they just. There's no way that somebody's going to want to buy one of these things. It was. Uh, why would I? Yeah. It was like the, the, for the amount for the amount of well at that point in time the amount of memory on a card and how many photos you could take and the resolution that you actually got out of it compared to film, and then they looked at well then you have processing and you have all this other stuff you're taking all this away from us why would somebody why would we think about doing this? Yeah, exactly. So when he went to leadership, they they thought all that and leadership said, "Great idea, Steve. Uh, don't tell anyone." <laughs> And that was their philosophy. Um, and I think it was uh, in, that was the 70s when he brought that, late 70s. And then in the early 80s, I think it was a Fuji film came out with one. And they, they so that kind of released the technology on industry. People started seeing it. And Kodak, Kodak did their own analysis. And they said their own analysis told them image, digital images are going to surpass chemical film in 10 years. And you're right, they squandered. What did they do? They did nothing. All they did was argue about uh, how better film was. And yes, it was. It was for a certain amount of time. And they argued and they said, you know, the Kodak moment, you, you want to touch it and feel it. It's the Kodak moment, man, great marketing. But ultimately, about 2000, it shifted. And I remember I had a visualization company at the time when I watched the digital transformation happen between process film and digital. I remember that period is right when I started my company and they had 10 years and they did nothing. What I, what we recognize in industry is that we're sitting on the same kind of precipice that Kodak was sitting on. We have, we have a, a, an announcement from the world that says we have about 10 years or a decade to look at adopting these technologies and yes, it's going to fundamentally change our business models, but those who will be able to adapt and adopt will survive. That will be their di- uh, differentiator, in my opinion. Those who rely on old, outdated business models um, and are still carrying that with them in 10 years, those are the ones that I think are going to struggle. So we have to look at, at not just our past success. And I got to tell you, it's really tough right now because in the energy industry, there is more work than we can get to. So we've, we've had our, our strongest years in the last couple of years, but we know that success isn't going to last forever. These disruptions will do what has done, has been done, you know, to Kodak. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but um, we do see it as not just a differentiator, but uh, uh, part of our survival strategy. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I really well put, Jason. I, I you know, I, I know we're up against we're up against time. Um, I, I kind of love that the Kodak story, and I'd like to create a cliffhanger here because I want to have you back on the program to kind of continue this discussion. Um, I'm not sure if you're planning on coming down to our our spring our spring convention in Washington. Um, I hope you are because if you are, I want to get you on the podcast when we're down there oh, and, and 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 do this in person. Uh, but I want to talk about this more and maybe we can do something more regular because uh, it's a massive topic with so many different outshoots that it's hard to kind of try to tackle in one interview. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but I, I do want to I do want to have you back on very soon to kind of extend the conversation. I'm sorry we're kind of we're kind of limited today. Sounds great. Yeah, that sounds, sounds great. great. Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. So I you know. We'll, we'll kind of hold now and then and then we'll schedule something and and, and audience I, I think that you know looking back at some of these I read the Kodak story you can look it up online it's amazing um, and and it, and the true example I mean I'm a photographer and I love film but now I can shoot digital and I can download a hundred different applications to put the same processing effects on a digital negative yeah. and it's just that it's it's truly just something else um, so again Jason Paff uh, Vice President of Innovation at Power Engineers. Thank you so much for being on the program. This is a fantastic topic, and, and I do want to have you back on. Absolutely. I really enjoyed Absolutely. it, Jeff. Thank you I for really the time. Great. Wonderful. Jason, uh, thanks. And again, this has been an episode of Engineering Influence Podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We will see you again soon.